From WBEZ Chicago and PRX, this is Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. This week we're talking with Julie Klausner, the creator and star of the Hulu comedy Difficult People, about how music is the heart of the show. It's more than supplementary. It drives the tone, it drives the writing, it is responsible for whatever seems cool about our show. Plus, we review new records from Beck and a collaborative album from Courtney Barnett and Kurt Vile. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and we'll get to our conversation with writer and actress Julie Klausner soon. But first, we've got reviews of some new albums. Now I'm feeling so far away. I see the colors and all the kids going home. Night is crawling up to the That is a little bit of Up All Night by Beck from his new album, Colors. Greg, astoundingly, the 13th album of Beck's career. Everybody knows Beck, right? You know, since the mid-90s, the weird, acoustic, breakdancing troubadour reinventing himself as the good-time funkmeister, little period there of uh, orchestral pop melancholy, uh, which I think he revisited on his last album. Uh, if you look at 2002 Sea Change, it's, it's pretty similar to Morning Phase in 2014, which gets him, amazingly, late in a career, a Grammy for Album of the Year. Mm. Now, album number 13. It's been made in fits and starts over uh, quite a few years, between 2013 and 2017, with Beck working with his longtime bandmate, Greg Kirsten, who, uh, you know, used to be just a guy in Beck's band and is now producing the likes of Kelly Clarkson and Adele. What is Beck giving us on this album? We'll dig deep into that in a second. Let's first hear a song. This is Dreams, parentheses, The Color Mix by Beck, from Colors on Sound Opinions.
That is Beck with Dreams from his new album, Colors. Jim, you know, it's nice to have 13 Beck albums, and I'm pretty sure that I already own Colors. Uh, yeah, you it's do. called Odelay, it's called Midnight Vultures, records yeah. that he put out in the 90s. So we have Beck now sort of recycling some of his, you know, greatest pop moves uh, on this record with Greg Kirsten. You know, he does this very well, there's no doubt. He's a fine producer. You know, he knows a great hook when he hears it, and he loves to mix and match genres. He's been doing that, as I said, pretty much all his career with Odelay and Midnight Vultures being, uh, you know, examples of the highest form of that craft at that time. Let me put some prints together with some Ennio Morricone. Yeah, yeah. hip-hop, new wave, you know, pop melodies and hooks uh, in every song. This is a difficult album to dislike because it is so cheerful in some ways for Beck, whereas the last album was sort of melancholy. In this one, he's you know he's talking about being free, and it seems to have he's emerged from some form of personal crisis to uh, you know a greater understanding of you know I'm, I'm going to enjoy my life. If anything, there's a little bit of tension where he's talking about, I'm losing time, there's so many ways to live or love or die, you know, and I want to live my best life, you know, offering a little self-help advice. No profound statements here, though, in general. It's more about the sound. Um, I, I can't really endorse this record as a great Beck record. It seems like his moment has passed, even despite that Grammy a couple of years ago. It reminds me of Steely Dan winning a Grammy 20 years after their greatest, uh, you know, time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's a try-it record for me. Wow, I'm shocked. I thought Morning Phase was a try-it record. I went back, uh, and that was being generous. Uh, but I like this record, Greg. It's a buy-it record for me. He's not reinventing the wheel, except, you know, how can you say you're copying yourself when you're trying to imagine the police as realized by Bruno Mars? You know, and then he does like an Ellie Smith take. You know, aside from one song, Wow, which is so weird, uh, it seems forced. Live it once, can live it twice. So nice, so nice. Smooth like a tidal wave, take you on the getaway. I mean, these are as good uh, uh, songs as, as he's ever given us. I mean, they're, it's a great party record you put on, and, and, and people are going to have fun at your Halloween party. I really enjoy this record, so it's a buy it. That is a song called Over Everything from a new album between Kurt Vile and Courtney Barnett called Lada C. Lice. Kurt Vile, artist from Philadelphia, has put out a half dozen records on his own, an original member of the war on drugs with his friend Adam Grunseal. 
Uh, they have since gone off to their separate careers but remain friends. Uh, Kurt Vile is a superb guitarist, uh, one of indie rock's greats in that regard, uh, former guest on Sound Opinions, as was Courtney Barnett, uh, an Australian artist who was uh, hanging around that uh, Australian bar scene for a number of years as a guitarist in other bands before starting to write her own songs. Her debut album in 2015 was extremely well-received. Sometimes I sit and think, and sometimes I just sit. Courtney Barnett tells a story about listening to Kurt Vile's uh, 2011 record years ago and, and, and realizing, hey, this guy is speaking to me in a way that very few contemporary artists are. Kurt Vile himself said, when I heard that 2015 album that Courtney Barnett put out, I felt it was next-level stuff. They were mutual admirers. They, uh, they, they traded some emails. They had a few exchanges. Said, let's, let's see if we can record a song or two. A song or two became an album. So here it is, A Lot of Sea Lice from Kurt Vile and Courtney Barnett. Uh, the song we're going to play is called Continental Breakfast, and we're going to come back and review it in a second from Kurt Vile and Courtney Barnett on Sound Opinions. One, two... I'm a man But I feel Like a little boy Today I cherish my intercontinental friendships We talk it over Continental breakfast In a hotel in East Bumble Wherever Somewhere on Around here. Continental Breakfast by Courtney Barnett and Kurt Vile. The album is called Lot of Sea Lice. You know, Greg, so we have. We're both big fans of Courtney Barnett and Kurt Vile. They've both been guests on Sound Opinions. That doesn't mean we're going to like them together necessarily. Um, you know, but I think what we have here is indie rock, underground hipster, whatever you want to call it. Tom Petty coming together with Stevie Nicks, you know that they, they weren't wasn't guaranteed to work, but God, the chocolate and the peanut butter comes together, and they're even better than they are on their own. I love this record. Continental Breakfast, I think, is the perfect song to illustrate everything that's great about it. Um, you know, Courtney is a brilliant short storyteller who happens to write songs. Uh, Kurt Vile is a musical genius veering between uh, Sid Barrett, Crazy Horse with Neil Young, and Pavement, and they bring out the strengths of each other. That song, uh, Continental Breakfast, uh, you know, uh, Vile wrote the lyrics, and I think he rose up as a better lyricist, but Courtney sings. They're talking about being disconnected on different sides of the globe, and, and they're doing it very humorously in a hotel in East Bumble when they mm -hmm. finally get together. You know, they share a Continental Breakfast. Vile sometimes can veer off into psychedelic uh, noodliness. Uh, Courtney made him focused. Um, you know, Courtney can use some melody. Vile provided it. Uh, you know, these songs are just just fantastic. They really illustrate what's great about each other. I give it an enthusiastic buy it. 
Well, it's a, it's a great album from a, a standpoint of just a, a little curio. You know, it's not like intended to be this great masterpiece, but it, 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 it paints a window of two artists who are really creating at the top of their game right now. And they were both a little stalled in their own songwriting. And I think just interacting with another artist that they admired kind of helped them break some of those songwriting roadblocks that they'd thrown up. And they did it not by aiming, you know, super ambitious. We've got to write the best song ever. It's like you said, Jim, it's like these... Everyday conversations became the, the start of a lot of these songs. Uh, very basement tapes. It's like two people talking to each other on this record. I didn't mean to call for her. Forgot to have the fabric uh, It's like an electric campfire record. It's two mutual admirers sitting around by the campfire, plugging in the amps, and playing mm-hmm. kind of very intricate but yet casual guitar. The weave, you know, reminds me of the Stones, Jones and Richards back in the early days, or television, Mm. the way their guitars sort of trade lead rhythm roles. They're sort of tangled, and then they wind together, then they split apart, and their voices do the same thing. It's hard to tell where one voice ends and the other begins. This conversation just keeps going back and forth. Not a record that is supposed to change the world, but I, I got to tell you, it's one of those records I put on and I just love listening to it. Uh, I can't wait for next summer. I'm going to put up a hammock just for this record so I can <laughs> swing in it and listen to this record. Uh, a lot of sea lice is a buy it record for me. So two buy it's for a lot of sea lice. But what are your thoughts on the new Courtney Barnett and Kurt Vile? What about the new album from Beck? We want to hear from you. Call and leave a message on our hotline, 888 888- 859-1800. After a break, we'll talk with the creator and star of Hulu's Difficult People, Julie Klausner. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Listen to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with my partner Jim DeRogatis, and that's a little bit of the theme song for Difficult People, a comedy created by and starring our guest today, Julie Klausner. Now, we wanted to talk to Julie about many things, but one of the main reasons we wanted to talk to Julie Klausner is she's a huge music fan. 
She grew up in New York City and became part of that music and theater scene there as, as a first as a fan and then a participant. Uh, she attended uh, NYU. She was a first-person observer of that early 2000s rock scene with bands like the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs and the Strokes coming up at the same time, Interpol, very exciting time for New York City rock and roll. And she even wrote a book about her experiences with the people in the music industry. What a great title. I don't care about your band. What I learned from indie rockers, trust funders, pornographers, faux-sensitive hipsters, felons, and other guys I've dated. This is a brilliant <laughs> title, Greg, and it's a brilliant book. I very much enjoyed it. You know, Julie incorporates that love of music, that, that inner rock goddess that she is, throughout the current job as the creative force behind the comedy Difficult People, which you can see on Hulu. So it's the story of two best friends, you know, Julie and Billy, played by Billy Eichner. They're struggling in New York, trying to be creative, uh, working these horrible day jobs often. It's snarky. It's witty. It's one of the meanest shows, I think, in the history of television, but in a very kind way in some ways. Klausner uh, has been working with music supervisor Anthony Roman, uh, selecting the perfect songs that accentuate the show. And really kind of, you know, it's an ongoing commentary between the music and the comedy. Along with uh, being a writer and a creative, she is also a big music fan. And I'd argue, if you've read her work, uh, a pretty good rock critic. So, Julie, uh, welcome to Sound Opinions. We are so excited to talk to you. Oh, my God. Thanks, guys. I'm, I'm so happy to be here. I'm a big fan of the podcast. So the worlds of music and comedy sometimes uh, converge, but there are only a handful of people, I think, who can do both really well and balance those careers accordingly. You know, you've got somebody like Fred Armisen, who's a super talented drummer, songwriter, guitarist. He was a musician before he ever started doing comedy. And then you've got like Sharpling and Worcester playing with music on their comedy show. Why aren't there more crossovers? Interesting. Yeah, I mean, there is that old chestnut about how comedians want to be musicians and musicians want to be comedians. And I think the truth is that we both think that we're cooler than we are. I think that <laughs> I think comedians <laughs> think musicians are way cooler than they actually are and vice versa. Yeah. Um, and then you see, you know, sometimes musicians will go a little, you know, far with the patter and you're like, okay, I see what you're doing here. <laughs> and then meanwhile, on my side of things, like every season I, I, I do an original song. So it's clear that, you know, I have my... I want to I want to eat and have that cake as well. Well, was was music ever a contender of something that you wanted to do? I mean, did you play around with the idea of, of possibly, you know, be, becoming a musician or being a songwriter? Absolutely. You know, I, I started out as a singer. I did a lot of musical theater when I was a kid. And then I realized around adolescence that that wasn't cool. And I had to knock it off um, <laughs> <Yeah>. and, <laughs> and listen to rock records. And I did start as a singer and I have... Uh, many regrets, but one of which is I remember when I was a freshman at NYU seeing a flyer for auditions for a singer for a band that turned out to be the Mooney Suzuki. Oh. And, I, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I remember thinking, oh man, if I'd only gone out for that, um, my life would be so much better. It's way too early for a nostalgic look back at the 2000s in New you York so? music scene. I think so. It's like, what's I happening now? I think it depends now? on maybe how old you were, because if you were at your peak and you're looking back, I mean, I guess it's it's still too... Sh- it might be that too soon thing. You know, every generation, I think, romanticizes a particular period of their life where, where everything seemed to be happening. 
Uh, New York was seemed to be happening then. I mean, you know, it turned into an international news story. Oh, rock is back, the Strokes, TV on the radio. You know, the Mooney Suzuki even, you know, had their had their 15 minutes of fame. Um, did you were you sort of aware of that at the time that like, wow, we're living through this rock renaissance. And, you know, there won't be a period like this ever again for the next 15 years. Or was it just hey, hey this is the this is the way life is. And, uh, you know, we're just kind of we're just kind of flowing along with it. You know, it's funny because around that time when and that was sort of when I was in college or graduating college, I um, I was listening to a lot of new music in high school. And that was the period when I decided to go back and listen to classic rock stuff that I hadn't really had experience with. So that was sort of when I decided to get turned on to Queen and The Who and to some extent some prog stuff, some Tall, wow. some early Genesis, some Starry right. Dan, Rest in Peace. Yep. Um, uh, Meatloaf, which I know is a safe space to discuss my love of the loaf on the show. Absolutely, (laughs) absolutely. Talk about theatricality. Um, So ironically, like, yeah, while this stuff was going down in New York City, I was in my dorm room, um, you know, listening to Death on Two Legs and thinking, wow, this is really good. We, we are so undeserving, Greg, to have Julie, Julie Klausner on this show. I have never, I'm 53, Julie, I have never met a female Jethro Tull fan. Oh, I love Thick as a Brick. Are you kidding me? From just <laughs> wow. start to that, that whole record, I, I, it's like the, um, it's like drawing back a bow if you're doing archery and just shooting it into the bullseye. That whole experience. Oh, I love it. The production right. value. It's so yes. good. So you ride yourselves over the fields And you make all your animal deals And your wise men don't know how it feels To be thick as a brick Not even, Greg, she's not even going for Aqualung. Thick yeah. of, as a brick, <laughs> like the most impenetrable. Well, you Two know. Two sides of just ponderous, I have no idea what, but I love it. No, it's so clean. It's so clean. I love, listen, I love an ugly, greasy band making clean, precise music. There's something about that that really turns me on, and that album is just a triumph of that. There's so many, there's so many like sharp edges. It's so operatic too. I mean, you're like a Sondheim mm-hmm. fan, right? I know you like some Broadway stuff, and uh, that that that's like a Broadway progressive rock record, you know. It is, and they're they're. But Sondheim, it's funny you mentioned Sondheim because, and I know that this is not necessarily like the musical theater safest space in the world, which I'm completely comfortable with putting that aside. But Sondheim to me is more like if you had to metaphorically compare him to a rock person, I'd say is our sort of Dylan. I think I think Sondheim is our oh. Dylan. Mm-hmm. Well, as all a theater uh, person, uh, yeah, and and that and that um and I guess think it's a brick is sort of more of the like Andrew Lloyd Webber yeah. and kind of like yeah, almost that yeah. Jesus Christ superstar yeah. you know trajectory. Of, but you, that's you, an album you listen to. From you you top start to bottom, season saw. three um, with Sondheim and 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 I gather because I haven't gotten to the end yet. Uh, you 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 end with it right. So there's a, like a whole Sondheim kind of arc here that goes along. We with, do. Yeah. We do. We start, um, well, the first words uttered by our characters on season three are resist and impeach, but they're not referring to Donald Trump. They're referring to a CBS live televised musical of um, Sunday in the Park with George starring the cast of The Big Bang Theory called yeah. Bazinga in the Park with George. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And our characters um, are so horrified um, at this very notion that we crash the production and destroy the scenery and we end up getting community service. Yeah. Um, 
And then, uh, you know, at the very end, in the last um, in the last episode, we explore how Billy and Julie met originally um, in uh, 2001. Mm. So we um, start and end that episode with um, old friends from Merrily We Roll Along. Most friends fade or they don't make the grade. New ones are quickly made and in a pinch sure they'll do but us old friend what's to discuss old friend here's to us who's like us damn few billy and julie actually met at a um a, in a dance class called Strutton to Sondheim, which is like a musical theater joke because the songs are so undanceable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're not catchy. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of really nerdy jokes that are <laughs> targeted yeah. to like yeah. three people and two of them are me. Um, <laughs> but um, but the, the idea is that um, Billy and I met in this Sondheim dance class and the dance instructor asked... Um, sort of like one of the most terrifying questions of all time to introverts, misanthropes, whatever you want to call our characters, which is find a partner, pair up. And both Billy and Julie look around the room totally panicking and we both ditch the class. And that's sort of how we meet is right outside um, the class thinking, I don't want to touch hands with a stranger. Are you kidding? They'll be all yeah. clammy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, so, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I gather that the success of difficult people is real. I mean, that's nice and all, right? And it's wonderful. But but your biggest kick in the three seasons you've done is being able to work with the music supervisor and pick songs you love, right? I mean, oh it, it just comes through. I, I love it. Right? I mean, this is like, like so the whole fun. thing exists yeah. for you to talk music. Listen, I <laughs> don't tell don't tell anybody, but um, the the music of it. It it's it's more than supplementary. You're right. It it drives the tone. It drives the writing. It takes away what could be cute about it because it is a show about a friendship. It's a it's a love story between two best friends. Yeah. And the flavor I hate most, especially with television comedy, is cloying. Mm-hmm. So I think yeah, the ability to be able to choose driving rock songs and I kind of hate the term power pop, but I love power pop. Um, is um is responsible for our for whatever seems cool about our show so much of it is musical and we have an amazing music supervisor and we've also gotten to re- uh, work with incredible songwriters you know we have Amy Mann who wrote an original song for this season that I got to sing which was a dream come true we had Ted Leo write us a song for the first season Julie sure I admit that I'm bitter with other success Look at these miniature dresses. Yeah, I mean, they're both great. And they both understand comedy, and they're both very, very funny. Oh, yeah, no, they're both, um, and Amy's Amy's dryness is so envious. You're like, oh, God, what I would do for just a fraction of that dry delivery. Yeah, that she's a, the coolest woman well, in the well, world. Well, you were mentioning she really the, is. You were mentioning the, the overlap between the comedy world and the music world. Amy Mann's an example of that, um, and especially at that Club Largo in L.A. There's a lot of those kind of double bills. Where they have a comedian and a and a music act, and uh, they come out of that uh, sort of culture where those things kind of are very fluid. And and she she's an appreciator of comedy. I'm sure she's a huge fan of your show, which is probably why she gave you a song. Um, but that's an interesting area How, because obviously you put a lot of thought into this music. Um, do you have debates about, you know, which is it, is it immediately apparent to you, oh, we need to have this song? Or, or will you like have like 20 choices 
And then you're thinking and debating and figuring out, okay, what's exactly the perfect song for this one moment in the show to illustrate the point we're trying to make? Well, we have um, this incredible music supervisor, Anthony Roman, and he speaks the same language musically. So if I'm saying, I want something that's a little bit, just it's fresh in my mind because of your guys' show. If I'm, if I'm like, let's have something a little bit more Melvin's y, he'll mm. know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> And I'll say, um, I just want, I just want like, like 20% less Bell and Sebastian on this track. Another sunny day, I met you up in the garden. You were taking plans, I took you back your pardon. And he'll find a rock band I'd never heard of and a track I've never heard of. But, um, you know, if it's something with a lyric or something with a hook or something that just is driving to keep up the very fast pace of the show, he's very successful in um, in finding it. The, the thing that he learned working with me very quickly is that I hate stings. Um, they remind me of the show Scrubs, not to disparage the writing of Scrubs, but they did do this thing which was... You know, you'd have a like, you'd have a guitar riff, and be like, da 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 da, da and then the next scene would start, and that is <laughs> yeah, yeah, my yeah. worst nightmare. Yeah. I, I can't, I can't handle the rhythm of that in the same way that certain people can't watch um, multicams because there's just a rhythm to I've got a setup, I've got a joke, and then the audience laughs and then repeat. You know what I mean? Like, so there's a certain rhythm to. Um, the show where I want songs to either fade out or stop when they're over, but not in a place where it's like, I remember there was this one bass line he took from a song that was like, do 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 And I was like, nope, we're not ending on the do do. We're going to keep That bass line is going to fade into the scene because I don't need to punctuate these jokes any more than they already are. I just don't want to add exclamation points and bold and italicize them um so yeah stings are uh, a, a no a no-go on our show and then when it comes to actual songs that we kind of work backwards to save up for that we'll reserve in the budget that are just essential then we will have to kind of swap that out with other cues later um mm. just monetarily like there was there's a couple songs that we knew that we'd had to save up for this season one is the um, the Sondheim song at the end that we use, which is Old Friends. We have an original recording of it, and we also have a cover of it. And then we have um, a, a track from Willy Wonka and the Oh, Chocolate I was going to get the original how, how movie. How expensive was it to get Anthony Newley and Leslie <laughs> Bercuse's, uh, gold, you know, I've got a golden ticket? It wasn't that it was expensive. It was a combination of luck, generosity, and all of the stars aligning at the same time. I never had a chance to shine, never a happy song to sing, but suddenly half the world is mine. What an amazing thing, because I've got a golden ticket. It's ours, Charlie. I've got a golden sun up in the sky. So there's a there's an episode in which my character is stealing her neighbor's um online shopping and she opens the box because she's sick of signing for her packages and she opens it and there's this golden toilet seat inside (laughs) and we needed to have it was like one of these Japanese you know fancy bidets and we needed to have in order for it to be as ridiculous as possible the original music from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory I was like I don't want to sound alike those are never as good this for me had to be the original I wanted to hear pure imagination I wanted to (laughs) taste the chocolate I wanted to (laughs) (laughs) I, I wanted to feel the velvet on Gene 
Wilder's lapel. Like I was well, even to be the, the way that scene is moment. shot. You know, the toilet seat illuminates your face. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, we had to get that. <laughs> there was a lot of tricky lighting, and it just had to feel magical because it's so stupid. Billy, I got a golden toilet seat. I got a golden toilet seat. Oh, Julie, run to the bathroom. Run to the bathroom, and don't stop until you get there. Mark Shaman. He and I have known each other for a couple of years. He was actually on the show. He was on season one. Mm-hmm. And he and Scott Whitman wrote the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory Broadway musical that's now playing. So we had approached, I believe it was, I don't remember if it was Sony or Paramount. We approached the, the movie studio. They were like, no, you can't use the original. Are you crazy? <laughs> and I said, well, how much is it going to cost? They're like, there's no amount of money. You cannot use it. And I went to Mark Shaman and I said, listen, this is what we're dealing with. Here's footage of, you know, here's like the the footage without the music. And here's what the sound alike. And you can see how bad it seems. Is there any way you know Leslie Bracuse or the anyone from the estate of Anthony Newley? And he wrote Leslie Bracuse a note and said, listen, I know this is crazy. A friend of mine wrote this show. There's a very silly plot line, but she wants the music to Willy Wonka. Is there any way that you can give her permission so we can get an orchestra to do a cover of it? And Leslie Bracuse wrote back the most Willy Wonka Ian <laughs> thing of all time, which was of course she can. Songs are meant to be heard, aren't they? Yes. Mm-hmm. And then we got the permission of Anthony Newley's estate. And the next thing we knew, a um, an orchestra in Atlanta, Georgia, um, a production orchestra, which means after this, they recorded probably something for a yogurt commercial, um, <laughs> sat down and did a really beautiful cover of Pure Imagination into I Got a Golden Ticket, the whole overture, basically. Mm-hmm. And we got to use it on the show. And it's completely magical. That, that that had to be like half of the budget for that season. It, it wasn't cheap. It was worth every penny. I was going to say that's a it's a, an amazing amount of time and effort and and thought going into <laughs> this music. And and Julie, I'm wondering. I mean, obviously, there's a tradition of using music in movies and TV. Um, were there role models for you in terms of how you wanted to use music? Were there other TV um, shows or movies that inspired uh, your vision for sort of combining the two mediums? I've always loved how Paul Thomas Anderson uses music. I think mm-hmm. it's it's never an afterthought. You could picture him hearing something and then envisioning what should go with it. You know, that amazing moment from Punch Drunk Love where the soundtrack from Popeye comes in. <laughs> and all at once I knew, I knew it once, I knew he needed me. All of the, you know, the, the sing-along in Magnolia, the, the fact that he, you know, brought um, Supertramp back into the conversation with Boogie Nights. I yeah, mean, yeah. There, there is so much about, um, you know, his work. I'd say John Waters also goes into any movie that he makes with a very, very firm understanding of the soundtrack. Um, and then as far as TV shows growing up, you know what I really loved was The Kids in the Hall. Um, yeah. They had one band the shadowy men on a shadowy planet 
and the interstitials between their sketches were so cool. They were <laughs> yeah, all yeah. sort of shot on this like, you know, kind of rickety black and white um, footage and this sort of surfy 90s. Um, you could tell there were only three guys in that band and it, 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 it was sort of ramshackle and it was very like, let's put on a show and there was something kind of punk about it. After the break, we will be back with more of our conversation with comedian and music geek Julie Klausner of the Hulu show Difficult People. Later, Greg's going to put a quarter into the Desert Island jukebox. Uh, Greg, a little taste of what's coming up? Yeah, Jim, I'm going to play a track from an artist that I think is really vastly underrated, but is one of the greatest soul singers of all time. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. He's Greg Cott, and we are talking to actress, comedian, and music lover Julie Klausner, the creator, writer, and star of the Hulu series Difficult People. If you haven't seen it, catch up now. Binge. So, uh, Julie, I have to ask about this moment in the pilot episode of the show. It just kills me. Your best friend Billy is learning how to drive in New York City because for a lot of lifelong New Yorkers, you know, there's no point in ever even trying to drive. But he's learning, and he accidentally hits David Byrne of the Talking Heads, uh, who's riding his bicycle. Uh, so, Julie, did you really want to run over David Byrne? Uh, no! <laughs> the Talking Heads are probably my favorite band besides, like, the Beatles. I agree. Um, I agree. But, but there is a little I, smugness to David. You know, it, oh, it, it you was think, nice think, to see you, him. Uh, it, you think there's something a little pretentious about David Byrne? Hold yeah, on. Hold yeah, on. Yeah. Well, that's Talk what I'm about saying. a sound opinion. I, yeah. You know, I mean, it's like all due respect. He's a genius Listen, and all that stuff. But, you know. He's but a the, complete, total, utter, brilliant genius. That said, no New Yorker has seen him bopping around downtown Manhattan on yeah. his bike and not imagined pushing him off his bike. I'm sorry. <laughs> yes, I know it's yes, terrible. Yes, no, it's He's true. He's a legend. And like I said, Talking Heads, probably my favorite band of all time. Um, but you can't help but think about it when you see him and you will see him i know he's, he's always on his bike he's always on lafayette with his shock of white hair it's not fair that he's aged that well um it's <laughs> no, just a and, thought that occurs to you you know i was at nyu i was at nyu like you know 84 86 you know and I, you would see him on the bike then and he had one of those little tote bags you know way before we were required to have them you know yes. with, his, with his with his vegan kale or whatever the hell and you would just yeah. want he bikes past and you want to just play like, oh, you know what if he hit a pothole? That'd be really funny. But, but it was so it's, nerdy, exactly. you know. 
it's something you can't help. It's something you can't help but but think about. But that said, you know, may he live a hundred years, and he's a, a of legend. Course. And God bless David Byrne. Did, did you hear from him? I have not, but I would love to. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> ask him for a song. It's probably more likely. <laughs> that sure, yeah. it's more likely that you'd hear from Chris and Tina, who would tell you that that was very funny, and they laughed their butts off. They seem like the coolest people in rock and roll. Yes. Okay, so what was the shining moment for you where you just thought, we just hit it out of the park with that combo of music and image? Um, was there is there one like that that you can sort of cite from the show that really, every time you see it, you go, that's perfect? I'm really excited about this song from this band called Foxy Shazam. Yeah. Called yeah. Bombs Away that ends one of um, the episode. To be completely honest, when I first saw a, a rough cut of the episode, I was concerned about the ending in that I didn't think there was one. And I thought mm-hmm. to myself, how are we going to end this episode? And I thought, okay, if we get a really, really great song and we can do some sort of split screen so that it looks like a montage of sort of the three stories that were happening this episode all sort of coming together because they weren't they weren't like verbal conclusions. They were sort of visual conclusions to each story. So um, I'm actually really happy that we saved it for this episode because it has so many different dimensions and it, there's so many different... There's like, first of all, there's like four rock songs in this one rock song, and there's so many places where you can cut, mm-hmm. and they're really sharp, and they really accentuate the music. Um, so I'm really proud of that, of that moment and how it came together. And it definitely, it just had helped us um, come up with an ending for this episode. I was going to say, now that we're talking pie in the sky, um, what about uh, cameos, music, uh, musical guest cameos that you would, you know, like if I could get so-and-so on the show, that would just be perfect. Uh, Is there, is there anybody like that, that you've got in your thoughts that someday down the road you could see uh, casting for a part in the show? Oh, gosh. Well, we've already had Kate Pearson, which was a right. lifetime yeah, she's great. Yeah. dream of mine. You know, growing up uh, a redhead, I she was just sort of always like the queen of the Redhead Hall of Fame to me. Mm-hmm. And so we got her to play herself in season two, and that was just a, you know, a, a dream come true. Um, I'm trying to think of, um, we had Mickey Dolenz this season also, mm-hmm. which was, you know, he was a very good sport about playing himself, um, <laughs> a version of himself that was stalking Billy in order to get notes on his one-man show. Um, I would, um, let me think. I'm just thinking of the redhead, uh, Hall of Fame, Kate Bush. Yeah. <laughs> the the shyest be, woman in the world. I would, yeah. <laughs> I would just love to see a she show, can, you know? Yeah. I would love to, I would love to have Kate Bush play my, my, uh, artistic aunt or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Elvis Costello would be a dream. Um, he's actually so, so funny. I don't know, Fiona Apple, but just to meet her, cause I'm such a huge fan of hers. Yeah, she's she's fantastic too. Well, well, sorry. So, 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 Julie, you've been far too nice to us, because uh, between the lines, a couple of times, you've been. I go, well, you're the meanest woman in comedy, right? And I say that. Oh with affection. no, I'm not the queen of mean by by no stretch of the imagination. Our, our characters are cranky, but I get that all out on the show. Right. It's now catharsis. that I have my own show, it yeah. would be ridiculous of me to be. It's you like know, the blues. As, as you get it out in the yard. I understand. But but so yeah, so yeah. underlying here, you've been almost apologetic every time you've mentioned musical theater. Because uh, you know, Greg and I have dissed it on this show. So we've had this contention, me and Greg, that, that, that you know, there's rock and roll 
and then there's musical theater. And this, you know, the blood of the martyrs or one of the meadows of France, right? Nobody in rock sings that way, and they're diametrically opposed. So so, so, so play rock critic for us, because you're obviously okay. a damn good one. How do you square those two things? You know, the, the kind of cheesy theatricality of theater mm-hmm. music uh, with... The, the, you know, authentic aggression or, or just genuineness. There are other shows that are less traditional that I bet I could, I don't want to say I could turn you on to. I, I don't want to make a, well, I go with you, know, you. I'm not going to challenge you to a try it. Rocky Horror Picture Show is brilliant. Mm-hmm. Changed my life when okay, I was 13. Okay, so if you like Rocky Horror, okay. If you like Rocky Horror, do you like Phantom of the Paradise? No, no. Do you like uh, Hedwig? I don't like anything else. I like 1776 because that's because I'm a history nerd. <laughs> mm. But then I actually went back and listened to it for the first time since like my third grade trip to Radio City Music Hall, and it didn't okay. age. Yeah, I think I think the what problem. What about um, Passing Strange? Did you ever hear that? No. You don't know me, and I don't know you. So let's cut to the chase. The name is Stuart, and I'll be narrating this gig so just sit tight. We might play all night. Uh, Stu, you know Stu? No, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, think, I, I, I know recommend Passing she's Strange. She's giving us a list a, of homework. I yeah, like this. Right. I, I am. I'm going to I'm gonna recommend Passing Strange. I'm going to recommend um, it's a little bit um, EDM, but he's sort of in this 80s sophisti-pop groove, but the American Psycho musical that Duncan Sheik wrote mm-hmm. I think is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Groundhog Day I really like. Tim Minchin, who wrote Matilda as well. I think there's a songwritery. I think there's a songwritery crossover. And I would say maybe not aggression, but how about irreverence? Maybe we can agree on that. There's definitely a lot of satirical value to musical theater. And then there's Sondheim. I mean, Sweeney mm. Todd is like, <laughs> yeah. it's this, um, I know, I know. I... Listen, I can't, if you don't like it, you don't like it. But I, I grew up with, I grew up with Sondheim. And to me, he's like, he's like, you know, the genius. He's like my Shakespeare or Dylan or um, but as far as we, we've gotten, um, well, what about we, Jesus Christ Superstar? Do you like? I Jesus do like Christ it. Superstar? Yeah, yeah. This Jesus must die. Yeah, well, you're right. You've that's, the, that's pretty great. You've, that's got, pretty the, you've great. got the burns of uh, a libretto. I think that's the big thing. It's, there's got to be a lot of exposition, and it's very wordy, and that doesn't lend itself to great music necessarily because you, you're, you're basically advancing a plot or a character. But you know, we were we were we had a tremendous uh, fight about the Randy Newman record um, because I remember very, I heard that very yeah, Broadway esque yeah, in parts, and I thought he was almost sending it up or satirizing it in a really funny way. It made me laugh. Uh, mm-hmm. Jim hated it because it sounded it reminded him too much of Broadway. Uh, so there's elements of it that it, it it just seemed like the genre doesn't lend itself to. Uh, you know, to rocking out, man. You know, it, it's, it's one of those you, things. Yeah, but she problem. just, she just, Julie just, Julie. Well, we, I, we just got ten I know. Desert Island jukebox yeah. segments. <laughs> we don't have to work for the rest of the year. Julie yeah, and Klausner, you. And by the way, this is a desert island. You guys are going to steer your ship away from. You got the rock crit lingo down. You were. She was using. She <laughs> yeah. was. She was. That was just brilliant. I'm going to retire. Listen, why, they're why not. I... They're not so. Di- we're not so different, you and me. <laughs> I promise you. I promise you. There's there's, there's crossover. Yeah. I yeah. swear there is. There is. And listen, like, there. The more rock musicals, the better. I think. And and you know, you go back and you think about Queen and the. I mean, like, oh, yeah, there Queen, was obviously. major theatricality, mm-hmm, um, sure. especially on the other side of the the pond, because that seventies. Um, that 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 70s theatrical rock from the Brits wasn't grounded in R&B the way that our rock and roll right. is and was. So it it had more of an operatic 
quality. It was sort of more rooted in like like what like music hall and things like that. So mm-hmm. right. I don't think that any of that stuff is um, the opposite of musical theater. I think it it's on the same. Um, it's on, it can be on the same vibration, man. We have been talking to Julie Klausner. It's been our privilege to uh, talk to the star of Difficult People and the creator of Difficult People. Julie, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, my God. It's my pleasure, guys. And like I said, I'm such a big fan of the podcast. Keep it up. Please. You, you, you got an open invitation. Anytime, you know, you have proven yourself a, a rock critic <laughs> par excellence. Thank you. That means a lot to me. That wraps up our conversation with actress, writer, and comedian Julie Klausner, the creator of Hulu's Difficult People. And now we want to hear from you. What television show uses or has used music the best? Call 888-859-1800 and leave us a message. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. As often as possible here on Sound Opinions, one of us takes a trip to the desert island, pops a quarter in the jukebox, and plays you a song we cannot live without. Greg, I'm eager to hear what you have. Thanks, Jim. Uh, We have been both digging into the great Al Green biography by Jimmy McDonough, Soul Survivor. And we're going to have Jimmy McDonough on in a future episode of Sound Opinions to talk about Al Green. Yeah. But there was a portion of that book uh, that he devotes to one of Al Green's predecessors in Memphis as a great Memphis soul singer, O.V. Wright. Mm. And it reminded me, oh, man, I used to love and I still love O.V. Wright's music. I don't think he's a household name, but I think he's one of the greatest soul singers of all time. And uh, as, as McDonough points out in his book, um, his work with the producer Willie Mitchell laid a lot of the groundwork for what Al Green later ended up doing uh, in that Memphis high rhythm studio. Mm. Uh, he worked with some of the musicians that Al Green uh, worked with as well. Uh, so in, in many ways, O.V. Wright, a precursor for Al Green, but Al Green obviously much more commercially successful. I want to explain briefly why O.V. Wright deserves your attention. He died young. He was uh, uh, age 41 in 1980 when he died, and he had a history of drug abuse that I think uh, sort of nipped his career uh, ascendancy in the bud. Uh, but as in terms of a singer, no soul singer combined that deep blues feeling with the gospel uh, ecstasy that he grew up on uh, as a as a church going kid. Um, you know, he had a very, uh, let's say, checkered life with the ladies, um, mm. you know, very, very rich, very uh, complicated. So had a lot of experiences with heartbreak, with a disappointment in his behavior, uh, spent some time in jail. And I think the song that I'm going to play reflects some of that experience. He put out a great album in the middle of Al Green's, uh, you know, fantastic commercial run in the early 70s called Memphis Unlimited. So the Memphis Unlimited record by O.V. Wright didn't quite get the attention it deserved, but it was chock full of amazing songs. Willie Mitchell produced a lot of the high rhythm guys were performing on it. Um, This is a song about um, spending some time in prison uh, a guy comes back home to find that his wife has given birth to a child, and his brother 
is the father. But the math doesn't work out. Somehow we've got this three-year-old. I've been away for five years. You've got a kid. Who's the father? Well, the father is my brother. There's this amazing sense of heartache and anger merging in this song. And the way O.V. Wright is is able to overcome that and say, I love the son no matter what. Uh, and it's a beautiful song. It's a heartbreaking song. You can appreciate what this guy is coming back to. It's O.V. Wright with a song called He's My Son, Just the Same on Sound Opinions. I just got home from serving my time. Now the baby in the family, and I know he's not my writes, he's my son, just the same, a fine Desert Island jukebox pig, Mr. Cott. What do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we're going to play music from bands who put on a costume and perform as someone else. Just in time for Halloween. We have some thank yous to say on the way out. Sound Opinions is produced by Brendan Banasak, Evan Chung, Alex Claiborne, and Iona Contreras. Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Hi, so I am just listening to the Sound Opinion with Jamila Woods. And when I tell you, this is like the voice of God. Give me today my daily bread. Help me to walk alone ahead. I have been playing this song. I kid you not, this is real life. I have been playing this song nonstop for the last week. Woke up this morning with my mind set on loving me. I was having a quacky day, and this song comes on. It's the voice of God. I love Jamila Woods. I love your work. I love sound opinions. I love Chicago, I love America, and this is Siobhan. Thank you. I'm not lonely, I'm alone, and I'm holy by my own. Hi, 
Hi, this is Catherine Fox from Reedsville, North Carolina. Man, holy crap. <laughs> I just listened to Jamila and I'm, I'm in tears. I'm a white girl and I like different music just from the spirit inside out and man, she really hit mine, especially in these days and times with the way things are going. She's really speaking to a lot of people. Love her. Thanks. Bye. Hello, this is Scott from Chicago, Southside, just listening to your, your interview with Jamila Woods. And I must say, I had to turn off the stove, stop cooking. I was amazingly impressed and looking forward to finding and seeing and hearing this woman perform. Her poetry, her voice, the way she delivers was just all inspiring. Thanks for uh, this type of interview and what it does for our community. Jim and Greg, this is Jana from Raleigh, North Carolina. Great Tom Petty show. I think Tom Petty resonated with all of us because we all felt like he was one of us. And being from the South, I really felt like he was one of us. One of my favorite songs by Tom Petty is the song Southern Accents. And in that song, the speaker is flawed, but he speaks of a pride and a longing for home that everyone can relate to. And it's that kind of feeling that bridges divides and it helps us to understand each other. I got my own way talking, but everything is done with a southern accent. Where I was really proud of Tom Petty for coming out against using uh, the Confederate flag and marketing the Southern Accents album, and he spoke of his own insensitivity in using it. That really speaks of his growth as a person, and it speaks to our growth as a region about how we can be flawed and grow and still be proud of where we're from. I think everybody can relate to that. Um, his songs are so timeless, and the songs that you love at age 17 mean something different, and they're just as important to you when you're age 50 and you've been knocked around by a life of it. And when you went out on American Girl, I cried for those very reasons, how universal his songs were, and that they tell the place and time and location, including its flaws, and yet the message was still hopeful. And wow, that's something we all need to hear these days. Thanks. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.